Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome back to the Great Women in Compliance podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm pleased to be continuing part two of a two-part series with Michelle Shapiro, who is a partner at Arendt Fox. So Michelle, you talked to us a lot about um, the life of um, a private practice lawyer, um, when, which has been your, your career staple. Um, and I wanted to continue on and ask you um, a little bit about some of the experience that you had at Denton's, not in terms of your core lawyering work, um, but in terms of your involvement in the Women Lead Committee and the Diversity and Inclusion Committee. So my questions for you are, what did you learn through your contribution to these committees? Um, and I'll, I'll, I've got a couple more to follow up on after that. Well, so interesting timing, Mary, because this can really be kind of a ripped from the headlines discussion. My work at Denton's with Women Lead has continued you know, through my tenure here at Aaron Fox. And so I, I really closely follow what's going on in this space. Just this morning, I was reading about the results of a study of women in the workplace released just today by leanin.org with, mm-hmm. um, together with McKenzie and company. Mm-hmm. And in a nutshell, after crunching data collected from almost 600 companies over the course of five years, their study found that while there were some what they call bright spots at senior levels with more women, you know, busting through the so-called glass ceiling and making it to the C-suites than in years past, the study found that the biggest obstacle that women face is earlier in the pipeline at the first step up to management. Mm. And they say, the author said that to achieve parity across the genders, companies needed to fix what they dubbed the broken rung, right? So we had a glass ceiling down to the Mm -hmm. broken rung. And Mm -hmm. I think that applies pretty well in the law firm world as it might in in sort of corporate America, Um, you know, rather than looking for leaders only in the highest echelon of the partnership, which would traditionally be those with the largest books of business, you know, we need to be looking lower down at the associates and junior partners and empowering them to become leaders. That's what my firm does at Aaron Fox. We have mm-hmm. something called the Fellows Program, mm-hmm. which was the brainchild of my friend and partner, Scott Peeler, who is just beyond passionate about promoting leadership, mm-hmm. diversity, and, and inclusion in the legal profession. So Scott ascribes to what has been dubbed the lead from where you are school of thought, meaning you don't have to be in the context of a part of a, of a law firm. You don't have to be a partner to be a great leader. Scott mm-hmm. has explained it as like, if everyone is given the opportunity to share their ideas and solutions to problems as they arise, then associates, junior partners, others in the industry, we can all be leaders 
And so what makes the Errant Fox Fellows program different from sort of similar sounding programs at other firms is that it takes a holistic approach to leadership rather Mm -hmm. than just focusing on like one particular aspect. It's a three-year program where the participants, uh, they attend retreats, they participate in seminars, they identify key issues at our firm and then help develop strategies to address those challenges And so the program really empowers different diverse voices rather than just regurgitating, you know, and and protecting the status quo. And that's really the culture of Errant Fox is really then no surprise that we're one of the few major law firms that's led by a woman. Um, Our managing partner is Christina Carvalho, who happens to also be the only Latina at the helm of an Amlaw 200 firm. She's a U.S. lawyer as well as a Brazilian lawyer. And not only does she lead our firm, but she happens to also have a thriving legal practice, not to mention a, you know, a beautiful family. She has accomplished you know, so much. It's really very uh, inspirational to work with her and to work at a place where differences are perceived as strengths rather than mm-hmm. as weaknesses. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, on part one of our, our talk together, you, um, kind of, you, you encouraged me to use dorky compliance analogies. <laughs> so I'm going to, I'm going to use another one Please. and say that just like you can't have a paper compliance program that just mm-hmm. sits on the shelf oh my God, and yes. gathers dust, mm-hmm. right? You mm-hmm. can't have a paper diversity and inclusion initiative. I agree. Um, right. Like they, it, for both, you, in order to succeed, it needs to be part of the fabric of the culture, you know, of the organization. Um, and then when that happens and, you know, bias is removed from the equation in the case of diversity and inclusion, I think we all win. I agree completely, especially, you know, from, I'm, I'm a foreigner sitting in a country that's not my own. So I feel like I bring diverse views and perspectives um, and um, for, for those of you who don't know, I'm um, half Chinese um, for ethnicity perspectives. And so it's really important to me, and it has been for a long time before, you know, I, I think once I started seeing um, race as being a thing, you know, as a child, you don't often think about it. And um, I came from a country where, or a certain, not necessarily a country, but at least I grew up in um, a neighborhood where there were a lot of um, Caucasian faces and it didn't really occur to me that I was any different for the longest time. Um, And I think that's probably how it it should have been. Um, But of course, as you get older, you realize, oh, actually, you know, there, there are some, some differences. um, And some people, unfortunately, believe that that's not a good thing. So um, really, really um, um, resonated with me when you said um, that it's actually a strength and I, I fully agree and it's part of the the same position that I take on filling um, a compliance program only with um, people who are legally trained because that's everyone with the same strengths there's no diversity in terms of skill set there and whilst we like that in a law firm for example we are supposed to be specialized in that area it's not necessarily going to work well in a fortune 500 company um, and building a, a holistic compliance program um, in that environment. I'm curious what other sort of non-legal backgrounds you mm. think make for a good compliance office. Yeah, that's a great question. So one of the things that we see a lot are people with um, internal audit um, and for, forensic accounting 
type skill mm-hmm. sets. So um, we often see a lot of big four. Um, we've embraced that a lot um, in my company so that the lawyers who can't do math are often balanced out by um, the, <laughs> those who are pretty handy with spreadsheets. Um, and they've been super helpful to me as one of those ones who's not great at math and not great with Excel. Um, and one of the things that we've got um, at Fresenius is a, a dedicated audit team within our compliance function. And I know that not everyone can have that. We're, we're quite large, so it makes sense. And I love um, seeing the way that people think um, about internal controls um, because I'm stronger at things like training um, on the internal controls and then watching people, um, how their minds work when it comes to, well, no, you need to think about um, covering off this area where there would be a gap, whereas that may not necessarily occur to me. Generally, those are the the types of backgrounds we see. We see um, HR um, often playing a part in compliance and um, coming from an HR background. And one of the, I think, the real strengths of um, HR trained people in compliance functions is that to me, one of the key differences between a really strong um, compliance professional versus someone who is very successful as a corporate commercial lawyer is the interpersonal skills because as a lawyer you tend to be listened to just because of who you are and um, compliance is a relatively new discipline. So we need to be able to persuade people more. We need to get buy-in. We need to get commitment, um, which is a totally different thing to getting straight out compliance, which is, you know, you pointing the finger at someone and saying, you do as I say because I'm telling you to do it. Right, which is often a, a blessing that you, you quite often have as a lawyer is my advice is this and client runs away and goes, fantastic, I'm implementing this because it's the recommendation. Whereas in compliance, we need to be able to better connect with the client um, and explain to them exactly what's going on and that we've listened to them and, and understood them and understand where they're coming from and that we've considered lots of different alternatives if the first answer is no and it, it won't necessarily work. So I think HR tends to be particularly strong at those areas. Um, so I think those skill sets um, tend to be ones that work really well and it's why I think we've also traditionally seen them apply um, appearing in compliance functions I'm sure that there are a lot of um, different skill sets that are perhaps less conventional for compliance to date that may end up being very highly sought after because of the unique talents and strengths that they bring to the program that perhaps we haven't solely considered yet and just thinking along those lines would be perhaps someone who's very strong as a trainer Um, or a communications and marketing professional um, and for a big company like mine might be solely in charge of the training and communications aspect um, of compliance because they know how to speak to audiences they know how to brand things in a very sexy shiny way Mm -hmm. Um, and so nothing is worse than sitting through a boring training with a bland you know trainer so couldn't agree with you more Totally. That's one of my absolute pet peeves for sure. (laughs) So um, in in terms of other companies who really want to make sure that they don't have um, just a a paper diversity and inclusion group or um, 
what advice would you have for them um, when they're going about setting up a, um, a professional women's group or, um, and or diversity and inclusion group? First, you know, it used to only be that we would talk about diversity. Inclusion kind of came later. Mm-hmm. And I think that was a great addition to our vocabulary because mm-hmm. it's not just enough to invite everyone to the table, you need to empower people to actually participate in the conversation. And those are two Mm -hmm. different things. So I think my first piece of advice is to make sure that you are looking at both both sides of that. Um, I think that making sure you are speaking with your people and responding to their wants and needs instead of it being a pronouncement from on, you know, down on high that this is what we shall do. Um, I think you need to have the buy-in of your full group. And again, gosh, I keep using these silly compliance analogies, but, um, you know, just like you need to have the buy-in from your business for your compliance program to work. I think you need to have the buy-in at every level of your organization to have a diversity and inclusion program be successful. And it can't just be lip service. You need to actually do it. You need to show your people that it's important and your teams need to actually be diverse. And that means not just checking a box so that when you're responding, you know, to an RFP, you can give some numbers that you think make you sound good, but it means actually having people leading teams and being visible and um, really participating in the process. So um, you will have seen a lot of great results, I'm sure, um, after the implementation of such groups focused on these areas. What are some of the standout initiatives that you worked on that were impactful for the advancement of women in leadership roles and for increasing diversity and inclusion in the firm? Fellows program that I mentioned is really, I think, a game changer. Um, as I mentioned, it's a three-year program. So it's not just one of these like, oh, let's get a group together mm-hmm. for lunch and have a speaker come, and, which, is, which is great. We just, here in, in my Boston office, we just had a speaker come as part of our women's initiative. Um, she's an author of this book. I happen to have it on my desk, so I'm looking at it right now. It's called Presenting at Work, A Guide to Public Speaking in Professional Context. And she was wonderful, and we all stood up and and learned to speak with authority. And it was a great program. But then we all, you know, went back to our desks and, and to our lives, and we'll we'll convene again some, at some point, which is great. I, I don't mean to poo-poo it, mm-hmm. but what I think is exceptional about this fellows program is that there's a very clear trajectory over the course of three years to empower the participants to become law firm leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really thoughtful. It's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not just thrown together um, on a whim. And that takes a really, really big commitment by the organization to support it. It's not cheap. It's, you know, a lot of resources go into it. A lot of time goes into it. But what we're seeing now that we're a little bit into the process is that it's effective. Um, and, you know, the idea, I, I've heard some people say that you can't teach leadership, that it's innate. And I don't think that that's true. I think it can be taught. I think that there's mm-hmm. a skill set. I think that sometimes you have the most, you know, introverted 
people that wind mm-hmm. up being powerful leaders when, when they have the right tools. Like yeah. you, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I think we so often mistake confidence, boldness, loudness as being equivalent to strong leadership. And the reality is Adam Grant, um, the organizational psychologist, has said this, there is no positive correlation between the loudness of people and how good their ideas are, right? Like it's a bias that we have, um, an unconscious one. And Mm -hmm. I'm really hoping that it's something that will turn around um, in the next several years because it is harming people um, who are fantastic leaders. And, you know, one of the, the worst examples I can think of is when companies, just as a matter of course, promote people because they're technically strong, um, but they're actually awful at interpersonal skills, you know, maybe to the point where they're even an awful person. And so you <laughs> have these jerks um, who have the most important role of all in a company, which is to be looking after the employees. And so I feel very strongly about this one, actually, um, and, and completely agree that uh, sometimes the people who don't look like um, a traditional leader or a conventional way in which you'd want a leader to do something um, they might actually be stronger than, than we think. Absolutely. I agree. <laughs> um, so that sounds amazing. And I would probably, um, add that I think when, you know, just talking about the paper program side of things, um, when you're committing for a three year period, it is awfully difficult to accuse someone of, um, an initiative being a token, gesture or something that um, isn't really to be taken seriously when a company is devoting that kind of commitment and time investment to it. So Mm -hmm. I love the idea of that planning, um, of making it a long-term initiative. And I'm sure there are many different ways that that could be spun, but just the idea that a company is saying, we value this so much that we're making X and whatever X looks like for your company, because it can be different. Um, I think that's a, a great uh, tip for, for the future, for anyone who's wanting to, to work on such an initiative. The, the getting guest speakers and the small sort of pop, you know, blast communications, that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. But similar, you know, I, I might just sort of follow in your footsteps here with a, a compliance thing. One of my big things for compliance culture is that it can't be just a one-off like a compliance week in terms of embedding that culture. It really has to be something that's done with a long-term view and repetitive to truly embed it into the DNA of the business. So right. if, if that works for your culture of integrity and compliance, um, why wouldn't it work for your culture of diversity and inclusion? Right, right. And, and just be clear, maybe this was clear, but just in case, mm. this three-year um, program, it's a cycle. So we select a class of about 10 fellows that mm-hmm. participate in the program for three years. But mm-hmm. after year one, then we have a new class that starts yeah. behind them for three mm-hmm. years. So we it's have awesome. you know, different classes simultaneously at, at different points along their three-year journey. So it's more that from the firm's perspective, it's a three-year commitment to a particular group of people, but yep. it's a long term commitment to the success of the fellows program. That's awesome. Thanks for clarifying. 
And then moving on to a, another topic now, uh, you and I once facilitated a three-hour workshop at a compliance conference on the topic of due diligence. So I can verify that you, um, that you have a lot to say about it. Um, what are you noticing clients focusing on more at the moment than they did, say, five years ago in terms of due diligence best practices? So keeping in line with that thought of always um, evaluating and analyzing, you know, what worked for you when you were 20 may not work for you when you're, <laughs> you know, in your late 20s and then and so on. So what about compliance programs? How have companies been evaluating them and their, their, their fit for purpose and evolving them? Yeah. So one area that strikes me as really, I guess, getting better over the last five years is tackling M&A, anti-corruption mm-hmm. due diligence. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that's a distinct, should be a distinct and essential element of any cross-border deal, you know, especially if the target does business in a high-risk jurisdiction um, so, you know, for years now, I've been talking about this and about how the Department of Justice and the SEC expect companies to be conducting this pre-acquisition due diligence. Um, but I'm starting to actually see an evolution where buyers actually want to know what they're in for. Right. <laughs> Imagine that, right? <laughs> it's not just about figuring out potential liability, but illicit payments can wreak havoc on getting an accurate, you know, economic analysis of the true cost of doing business. What's this deal actually worth? I think when the business people get that, they embrace it. And then, yes, it does cost some money at the front end, but it could save you a lot of money both in the deal itself and and down the line in terms of, you know, potential severe legal financial consequences, you know, reputational damage, um, all that. But but you can't find bribes on a financial statement. I mean, not anymore, mm-hmm. right? Gone are the days, like where in Germany it was a tax deduction. Um, <laughs> it's not easy, but, you know, if you really examine the target and get your arms around how it is that they've managed to succeed in their markets, um, you're spending some money on the front end, but it, it can help you in the long run. And, and uh, that's just an area that I'm, I'm pleased to see more and more clients embracing. That's great. And what about any other standards? Are you seeing any differences in terms of um, trends that are, are popping up for due diligence in recent times, perhaps compared with what we saw historically? Yeah. So I don't know that this is new, but two words, Third parties, third parties, third parties. I guess, wait, is that mm-hmm. six words? Um, <laughs> but, you know, time and again, we read about enforcement actions that stem from the actions of third parties. I think one of the most recent actions I read was uh, with Juniper Networks. Um, that one also reminds us of the risks of extending discounts to channel partners, third party business partners, and discounts. I like to call them the death and taxes of the FCPA Mm. because no matter how large and sophisticated and successful you might be, no one can totally avoid the inherent risks in those areas. So what do you do when you have to recognize the risks and try to mitigate them? So I see clients spending more and more of their compliance dollars on their third 
party processes from vetting, mm-hmm. onboarding, and you know relationships. Um, and I think the companies that are the most successful in mitigating third-party risks are the ones who don't just leave it up to legal and compliance to carry the water. I was really fortunate to get to know the former chief compliance officer of your company years before he retired. And he used to always say the business owns the risk. And of course that Mm -hmm. has to be so Mm -hmm. Um, not all companies live that way, but when the business owns the risk and has buy-in on the third parties, uh, sorry, on, on the third party process and they're managing it, they're making sure that the third parties are properly vetted and that the third parties have their own compliance programs that mirror what your company is trying to do. Once the business is on board and they see the value in it and how actually it could improve the bottom line instead of take away from it, um, and you have an advocate in the business leaders, and I think that that makes a compliance officer's job a lot easier. I know it certainly makes my job as outside counsel a lot easier. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, that line, I just keep hearing David's voice in my head, the business owns the risk. <laughs> so is that still, do people still walk around saying that? <laughs> I think that is, yeah, that's, I mean, it's absolutely, it's not necessarily to quote David, but I think <laughs> it is something that has become well-established um, within the company. And it's the whole idea generally that I, I would hope that if someone from our company was asked, well, um, who's responsible for compliance or who owns compliance risk, I would really hope that like health and safety, the answer would be, well, we all do. Uh, and I think mm-hmm. we're, you know, we're starting to see more of that um, as time goes on. It's probably going to take a little longer for that to be a full culture shift, but it's certainly something that, um, as you can tell, we've worked on very hard. Um, and I, I believe um, from my time in Asia Pacific in our company um, is, is, a, is symptomatic of a global attitude. Mm-hmm. Right. That's great. Thanks for, for sharing some of those um, due diligence um, thoughts. It's, it's um, interesting to hear, you know, because uh, I used to work in consultancy um, for compliance, not in a legal capacity, just advisory. Um, I guess it's like, it, it's similar. The advisory side is not with the, the practicing certificate and not with the, um, the, the uh, calling it legal advice. And one of my favorite parts of that job was having a finger in so many different pies of what all these other compliance programs look like. Um, And that level of oversight into seeing so many different programs at once and what everyone's doing at once, I really miss that. And so I I really wanted to get your expertise, um, given that you're still in in a similar position to be able to provide um, that benchmarking information. Another area of expertise for you is in the area of investigations, and I know that you have really strong FCPA investigation skill set. Can you share with us what are some of the trends that you've observed of late um, from your experience being able to help multiple companies at once? Yeah, so the world is becoming increasingly global, and it's not just the big you know, Fresenius multinational companies that have cross-border concerns, a lot of, you know, middle market and even much, much, much smaller 
companies that are grappling with investigations need to be thinking about it from a global perspective because there's often some piece of it that touches on another jurisdiction. So thinking through complicated issues like which data privacy laws apply and you know which what are they in the various mm-hmm. countries or or how does privilege apply you know the concept is different um, in-house privilege that exists in the United States doesn't exist consistently throughout the world so tackling an investigation that has potential global implications and thinking about getting local law advice I think is is something um, that is a, tr- a trend that we're seeing more and more of. Yeah, I think the um, privilege one can come as a surprise um, to, to many people who have spent the majority um, of their careers um, working for a United States company um, and then move into a global company. So for anyone in that situation or for anyone who's interested, um, you may be surprised to hear that um, around about, uh, I'm thinking, Michelle, it was around about mid-2010, um, we started to see um, the very swift erosion of legal privilege for in-house professionals in Europe. And then the situation in Asia is kind of murky, depending on what jurisdiction you're in. So the key takeaway from that is that um, you're not always guaranteed um, to have privilege covering um, communications uh, if in-house counsel is involved. And this is not to try and sell Michelle's services or those of anyone in private practice. I'm, I'm, I hate um, spending on vendors unnecessarily. And for those of you who know me well, um, you will, will know that I, I'm very <laughs> serious about that particular statement. Um, but what I, I do think is important is that when you're um, conducting investigations, um, outside of the United States to not assume that legal privilege is necessarily um, going to to protect the communications at issue that you want to have protected. So in that situation, um, I strongly um, recommend and do um, think it's important to engage external legal counsel um, at a very early stage of your investigation to ensure that you've got that privilege at that point. Um, and I think that's a, a key thing um, when you're moving from a United States compliance position into a multinational corporation, um, because, you know, there are several things that you're like, oh, I oh, didn't realize that. And it doesn't have um, a great deal of impact. Whereas if you fluff a situation and then you've just um, egregiously breached the a data privacy law of Europe, um, that can have very large repercussions for your company moving forward. So um, totally agree with what Michelle said, invite you to um, study up on those um, topic areas further if, if that's um, something new to the game for you or, or seek advice on it um, if you prefer. So that's the two-part series with Michelle Shapiro. We have finally gotten through our uh, lengthy list of content and questions. Thank you so much for listening in, everyone, and look forward to uh, seeing you all again soon. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.